Greetings and welcome back to my AP Comparative Government and Politics channel. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for joining me. My hope in today's talk is to try to establish a framework for you to begin to understand the complexities and nuances of Chinese government and politics. Maybe it's best to see this endeavor as a sort of setting of the table. My hope here is to just give you some considerations from which to commence serious and scholarly inquiries into Chinese politics. And after I've done that, I'm going to try to walk you through what I see to be the most pressing policy challenges that the People's Republic of China faces today. While I must confess that I don't always or maybe even often succeed in my effort to keep things brief, I am going to try to do just that today. For my effort here is, as I said, introductory. So let's start here. China is complicated. China defies simple understanding. This is partly a result of the fact that China has this really opaque political process, but it's also the way in which this opaque political process interacts with Chinese history and Chinese culture. It's also made all the more complicated because China is a rapidly changing country. And it is, indeed, rather difficult to get the accurate temperature of the water in the midst of a tidal wave. So we watch China, we watch China closely, but we also have to watch China knowing that the moment we think we've got things figured out, things could have taken a substantial turn. And when I say we watch China, I mean we are all watching China. China is once again the center of the world. China went from being a first-rate, second-rate country to giving the United States a run for its money in the race for global hegemony. And while I don't seek to weigh in on the debate of whether the future belongs to China or whether China is indeed an adversary of the United States or whether China really does, in fact, challenge in a serious way the power of the United States. These are serious conversations and there's no doubt that China is playing a substantially more robust role in the global economy, and in global political structures. With that in mind, China is still struggling to find its place in the world. Particularly in the post-Tiananmen, post-Soviet world, 
China has struggled mightily and publicly with its desire to promote some sort of a balance between freedom and order while consistently improving its GDP and purchasing power parity. So in this way, China is not unlike Russia and the United Kingdom, both of whom are likewise struggling to find their place in the world. And while this class is not an international relations class, it would be impossible to understand contemporary Chinese politics without investing some intellectual energies into understanding how China has seen its place in the world over the last centuries, you know, having much to do with humiliation, how China sees her role in the world today, and what China's plans are for engaging in the global political marketplace. It's my contention that China is seeking to deal with those relationships in mainly pragmatic as opposed to ideological terms. I mean, that is, unless you think authoritarianism is an ideology, and I'm afraid on some level it might be. But the goal of the current leadership of China is the quote-unquote socialist market economy, or what Tony Blair called the third way. Right, The Chinese Communist Party stakes its legitimacy, perhaps first and foremost, in GDP growth. And like Deng Xiaoping said, doesn't matter if it's a black cat or a white cat, so long as it catches mice. Which is to say, it doesn't matter if it's a socialist path or a capitalist path, so long as it puts more rice in more people's mouths. Right? So long as more people have access to man's worldly goods. So the more people have dishwashers and washing machines, indoor plumbing, automobiles, the occasional family vacation, things that perhaps we take for granted are things that this new generation of Chinese people are coming to expect their government to deliver. And that is indeed what most policy in China is geared towards doing, creating more opportunities for more Chinese people. Of course, it's not that simple, uh, nor is it that benevolent per se, but a lot of Chinese policy seeks to do that. It's a very pragmatic effort to improve the lives of Chinese people at the expense and on the backs of other Chinese people. But again, this talk here is just my effort to set the table. We'll dig into that problem sooner rather than later. So while we're talking about benevolence in Chinese politics or the lack thereof, let's be blunt about one thing. China is a one-party authoritarian state. There is no political pluralism. There are no competitive political parties. Freedom of speech is sorely limited. But contemporary Chinese politics are not and do not seek to be totalitarian. Remember, as we've discussed in class, all totalitarian systems are authoritarian, but not all authoritarian systems are totalitarian, 
nor do most authoritarian systems seek totalitarian rule. Though Xi Jinping is a departure from Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin, and that Xi Jinping is more authoritarian, and that there are these traces and these echoes of Maoism in the tone and content and rhetoric of Xi Jinping. Make no mistake about it, Xi Jinping is no Mao Zedong, nor does he want to be in terms of the degree of control that Mao had, the cult of personality that Mao had. It is alarming, I should say, the ways in which Xi Jinping does echo Mao Zedong. But I don't want to be more alarmist than is appropriate. So China is a one-party authoritarian state. Chinese citizens are largely politically apathetic, Hong Kong being the deviant case in that statement. And Chinese political apathy is born of an abusive relationship. Right? The Chinese Communist Party has forced most Chinese people into a state of political submission. So most Chinese people are subject to the authority of the Chinese Communist Party of the People's Republic of China. Now, there are questions about the degree to which and the ways in which China can continue to be a one-party authoritarian state while enjoying the GDP growth that China has enjoyed over the last 20 or 30 years. I mean, it has been astounding. The Chinese GDP has grown 10.5-11% per year on average for about three decades now. This is laudable growth. This is insane growth. And as we go on to learn and think more about Chinese politics and our time together, we could talk about how and why they did that and on whose backs they stepped for this type of GDP growth. But I bring up the economic situation, in part at least, to raise the question of whether China can be, as they once said, half slave and half free, which is to say, have a more free market economy, but have the people continue to be subject to the authority of the one-party state. You know, as a middle class emerges in China, middle class people will want in China what middle class people have wanted throughout the ages, which is more power, more authority, more opportunities to make their voices heard. And so part of the Chinese challenge is to, while freeing the economy, also free the political system. I would be remiss if I didn't just put my thumb on something before I move on. I don't want anyone to begin to think that China has something like a free market economy. It does not. There are a lot of myths in casual conversation about China. That, oh, China's more capitalist than America's capitalist. Or, oh, we shouldn't call it communist China. It's not communist. It's capitalist. It's not capitalist. The Chinese 
economy has certain illusions and certain trappings of capitalism. It's what the economist calls state capitalism. If you could deal with that oxymoron, right? Like a jumbo shrimp, we have state capitalism. But China is not a capitalist country. Cast illusions away. So again, these are just some introductory considerations that I want you to bear in mind as you seek to crack the code of China, right? As you seek to shed some light on this unusually opaque political process that we see in the PRC. And in order to deal with all of the aforementioned considerations, the Chinese government has to fundamentally reconsider three relationships, right? The first is the relationship between its past and its present. The second is the relationship between the Chinese state and Chinese society. And the third is the relationship between China and the rest of the world. And I want to dig into these three relationships, right? The relationship between past and present, the relationship between the state and the society, and the relationship between China and the world. I want to dig into these three by walking you through what I see as 10 of the most important current policy challenges faced by the People's Republic of China. And these aren't coming to you in order of importance, per se. Although it would be interesting, as an exercise, to take these 10 and rank order them from the greatest or most overwhelming challenge to a less overwhelming challenge. So let's talk about 10 current policy challenges. That's the entirety of my talk today. Okay. So first, and perhaps foremost, China needs to grapple with its past. One challenge that China faces is that it needs to embrace that this thing that we call China, this empire that we call China, we call it a country, it's really an empire. The Chinese empire is born of a diversity of traditions, Confucian, Buddhist, Islamic, communist as well. But there's a diversity of traditions that need to be embraced. And the Chinese Communist Party has to more than just atone and apologize. The PRC needs to act affirmatively to create inclusive policies that celebrate the diversity that China has to offer the world. We're talking about ethno-religious diversity, ideological diversity, all types of diversity. And it's my contention that for China to progress in a just and sustainable way, it needs to grapple with its past. In a way, I guess I'm arguing that the patient requires some psychotherapy. Not as the key to its future, but as part of a series of solutions to make China a more just and sustainable place. 
And China can only do that if it takes on this second challenge, which is promoting freedom and liberal democracy. China needs to invest in plans to disassemble the Great Firewall of China. Not only does China need to fundamentally revolutionize its censorship laws, the Chinese government and the Chinese people need to create a culture where self-censorship isn't such a scourge. For when people aren't able to speak freely and publish freely, then people aren't able to think freely. And if people aren't able to think freely, then the Chinese government isn't going to be able to have a political class that can solve the problems that China and the world face. Problems which we all are desperately seeking solutions for. So I'm not going to make the argument that China should promote freedom of expression and freedom of worship and freedom of assembly for purely romantic reasons, though I am, I will confess, a certain romantic about freedoms. It's a more pragmatic case I'm trying to make for freedom in China. And so that's a second policy challenge that the Chinese government can and I hope will take up. A third current policy challenge is equally vexing, and that is environmental restoration and protection. The last 75 years or so of Chinese industrialization has been one of the greatest marvels in human history. Say what you will about the Chinese Communist Party, and I have plenty of things to say about them, but the industrialization and modernization of China might well be the greatest feat of human enterprise in the history of mankind. You know, I challenge you to Google images of China in, say, the 1920s, the 1930s. It was what we used to call backwards, what we prefer now to call less developed or sometimes underdeveloped. China was a backwater. It had been insular. It didn't have a scientific revolution. It didn't have an enlightenment. It didn't have industrialism. And it has been amazing to watch China grow. It has been heartening in some ways, but it has been daunting in others. And one of the most daunting facets of China's economic and industrial growth is the effect it's had on the environment, and not just China's environment, on our environment, on the global climate. And one of the biggest challenges that China faces is to find ways to pivot post-haste to more sustainable forms of energy, to reforest, and to do whatever is necessary and proper to help China and the world forestall the calamity that climate change will thrust upon us. But China needs to do that 
while continuing its economic development. And this is the fourth challenge that I want to talk about. China joined the WTO in 2001, and for the last 30 or so years, China has pursued a policy where, quote-unquote, some get rich first. This has led to what we call relative deprivation, where you have basically a new Chinese billionaire every day. And I wouldn't say the poor are getting poorer because that's not true in China. But the gap between the rich and the poor is growing magnificently. And so China needs to find a way to develop sustainably, environmentally sustainably, and in a way that can sustain a middle class. And in a way that can help to bring the poorest of the poor into the fray. And in order to do that, the People's Republic of China absolutely needs to take on this fifth challenge, which is minimizing corruption and maximizing transparency. Corruption is endemic in China. From street thugs to the professoriate to elite politicians, corruption reigns supreme in China. And the political processes in China are nearly impossible for even the most seasoned and committed observers to understand. Now, I understand that every political culture has its nuances and its own language and culture, but politics in China is uncrackable because it's criminally corrupt and it all takes place behind closed doors in the Politburo Standing Committee, a group of a handful of old men making decisions from the top down. The notion of democratic centralism, this Maoist instinct, is still alive and well in China. And that lack of transparency is going to retard Chinese development. And China is still developing, regardless of what the Jeremiah headlines and even the most prestigious Western papers might want to lead you to believe. China is a developing country, and that's one of its most substantial challenges. This sixth challenge I want to dive into has to do with spreading the wealth and spreading the development across a broad geographical horizon in China. The Chinese landscape is changing rapidly. In the early 1990s, Deng Xiaoping had stated that he wanted China to be 70% urban by 2025. In 2020, China has accomplished the feat of becoming 60% urban. This is one of the greatest migrations in human history. China went from being a country that was in 1960, 85% rural to a country that today is 60% urban. 
China in 2020 is unrecognizable to a substantial portion of its citizens. And dealing with, first of all, just the sheer population of China is a challenge in and of itself. Dealing with the increasingly urban landscape requires an astounding focus on planning intelligently, which of course requires economic growth and it requires transparency and it also requires the reduction of corruption, things we've already talked about. And so this demographic and geographic problem is something that China needs to take on as a challenge. And along these lines, the eighth challenge I want to talk about is spreading some of the wealth to and sharing some of the development with ethno-religious minorities in China. While China is 92% ethnically Han, so in that way China is very homogenous, that 8% of 1.4 billion people comes out to about 128 million Chinese people. So looked at through that lens, you have a substantial minority population and a substantial minority population that has been routinely and systematically discriminated against, repressed, imprisoned, re-educated, tortured in some cases. I'm thinking particularly about Xinjiang. But we also have the Cantonese-speaking population of Hong Kong. We have Tibetans and the Mongolians. It's a great challenge for China to try to reverse its trend of hanifying China to becoming a more inclusive political culture that not only tolerates its ethno-religious minorities, but cherishes them. And that's a real challenge. I would love to see a world where China sets an example for how to atone for its past by creating a space for traditionally disenfranchised and discriminated against minorities to thrive. It's a bona fide challenge. I'm not convinced that this particular generation of elite Chinese politicians is up for that challenge. By and large, it seems like this generation of Chinese leadership is so deeply enmeshed in the project of fetishizing development in very specific terms, like terms that can be measured in GDP and GNP and PPP. But perhaps Chinese millennials, when they seize power in generations to come, perhaps they can do their part to take that challenge on. I mean, if it happened sooner, I I surely wouldn't complain. A ninth challenge that China faces is sort of pivoting into the realm of foreign policy. I'd say that China has to reconfigure the relationship between China and the world. 
And most of what I've talked about hitherto has to do with domestic policies and interdomestic policies. But I would be a fool to not at least put my finger on one of the problems and one of the challenges that China faces, which is that with great power comes great responsibility. And China has increasing power. We have the Belt and Road Initiative, which is making Eurasia a safe space for China to do business. We have massive Chinese investments in Latin America and in Africa. China has to reconfigure its relationship in East Asia vis-a-vis the Koreas, Japan, and the Philippines. And that turf has changed remarkably in the last decade or two. And when I say remarkably, I mean it is remarkable how much unmitigated power China has managed to assert in East Asia without Western interference. So it's like now that China dominates East Asia, and frankly, I think it's safe to say now that China dominates Asia, what's China going to do with that power? That's a real challenge. Another foreign policy challenge is how China is going to negotiate her relationship with the United States. You know, I'm recording this lecture in the last weeks of the Trump administration. And that administration changed the tone and content of the Sino-U.S. relationship. It opened up a lot of space for China to act more brazenly. There is a world where China and the United States can cooperate to make the world a safer place. It is, however, hard to imagine a world that is safer with the United States and China as inimical competitors. So I could talk about this forever, but suffice to say for now that in addition to some really overwhelming domestic policy challenges, China also has the challenge of repositioning its role in the world. And last, but certainly not least, China has to take on all of these challenges through evolution, not revolution. China already had its revolution from 1945 to 1949, or 1912 to 1949, if you prefer to frame it as such. And that revolution was cemented in the Cultural Revolution of 1966 to 76, and all of these affairs were heinous and inhumane and bloodthirsty and nasty and traumatic. And they caused, I'll say, intergenerational trauma. And the Chinese people and the Chinese leadership, they don't want revolution. They want to grow and develop through evolution. The Chinese leadership saw what happened when the Soviet Union crumbled. And that is a humiliating fate that this generation of Chinese leadership is hell-bent on not emulating. 
So I've been to China a few times. I like China a lot. I care about China. I care about Chinese people. I care about global stability and security. And I'd like to say I see a world where China can take these challenges on in a wholehearted and humane way. But I'm not a fool. And it does seem perhaps unlikely to me that a one-party authoritarian state that's riddled with corruption and lacking in transparency can take these challenges on. But if in the process of evolution, China can become more open, more free, more democratic, more transparent, less corrupt, more environmentally focused, less aggressive in East Asia, then I very much invite more Chinese power in the world. Of course, I think China's probably going to take that invitation, whether I extend it or not. Who am I? I guess I'm the fella who's trying to set the table for you. I hope these considerations help to wet your whistle. I hope these introductory ideas about China and Chinese politics make you want to learn more and to understand how China has grappled with these challenges in the past, how China is grappling with those challenges in the current political generation, and how China might grapple with these challenges in the future. If you are half as enthusiastic about diving into these problems as I am, we'll have a great experience studying China together. Catch you on the next episode of the podcast. Until then, please take care of yourselves, be healthy, be kind, and I'll talk at you soon. Bye.